today we have a couple of readings from Paul's letters. The first was to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 3. Do not rebuke any older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to widows who are really in need. And then he wrote to Titus, You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of praise, worthy of respect, self-control, and sound in faith, love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in a way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Good morning. My name is Brian, and it's really good to just open up God's Word with you today, both from First Timothy and Titus. And uh, I want to just begin by saying I'm encouraged uh, through many of the things I'm hearing from you about what this study on oneness is leading towards for you. Uh, I've heard several people and been involved in some discussions that talk about the divisions that are across our country, these really kind of big uh, uh, divisions that we see in trying to figure out how do I try to figure out how to make some headway and bring some peace and promote oneness and all of this. But I'm also hearing from people who are saying, yeah, the conversations I'm having and what I'm working through is just me and one family member, and there's a divide between us. And I'm trying to figure that out. And I say that's kind of a smaller conversation, but if you're the person and one family member is apart from you, it's not a small deal, is it? And so I'm really thankful that both conversations are happening because that's what God's Word does. It has application down to the intimate, close relationships in our lives, and then these big sweeping implications as well for a city and a community and a country that oftentimes finds itself divided. So for the first three weeks, we really laid this foundation of uh, God's desire for oneness, beginning with that we be reconciled to him and then that we be reconciled and united with each other and seeing how that trickles into our communities and plays out uh, in our neighborhoods. And if you missed one of those uh, first three, I would just encourage you to jump back and listen to that online so that you can have that really strong footing. Uh, and then for the, the rest of this series, we're going to talk about biblical characteristics that we all need to have in order to be reconciled to maybe a family member or a friend or a neighbor or to promote reconciliation in a really divided world from these large kind of themes. And so today we begin with this characteristic that if you don't have it, it's game, set, match, it's already done. There will be no reconciliation unless we all have, and here's a characteristic today, humility. 
And today we want to talk about that characteristic humility and kind of lay it on top of one of the divides in our country and and in our neighborhoods and maybe in your family. But one of the divides that we see is generational. We see this generational divide. And to be really honest with you, I don't hear this talked about very often at all. I hear about um, ethnic divides and socioeconomic divides, but I don't hear generational divides talked about very often. And I think that we really need to talk about it because I think it really is a problem for us that causes this division that's nasty. And, you know, when a baby is born... And apparently all you have to do to have a baby these days is be a part of the Highland Park Worship Arts team because they're, they're all having babies left and right. So there you go. Oh, yeah, Nancy's saying, not me, not me. Um, God is full of surprises. We never know, right? I'm sure Sarah said the same thing to Abraham a little while ago. We, <laughs> but they were way older. They were way older. So darn it, I just ruined my Mother's Day lunch, so... <laughs> uh, about every every 20 years uh, a baby is born and the baby has no clue that they belong to a generation and it's a, a new generation about every 20 years or so that that baby has no idea that they will kind of be stereotyped and lumped into a generation that baby has no idea that the older generations will be frustrated with their generation on multiple levels. That baby has no idea that when they're older, they'll be frustrated with the younger generation on multiple levels. That baby has no idea. The baby is born nonetheless. And uh, uh, if you think, well, it, it, it really has never happened before. I mean, just think back, regardless of your age. When you were a teenager, were some adults a little bit frustrated with you? I, I mean, think about the 19-year-old daughter who walks in and lets her mom and dad know she's going to Woodstock. I mean, how did that play out? <laughs> Not, right? And so every generation has its stuff, and yet we do come to this time where it feels like it's gotten ramped up a little bit. And, um, and, and you know that. And we live in a culture right now that worships youth. And so we market, you know, the businesses market to young people, and we're like, okay, if we can just get the 15-year-old girl to buy our product, then we're golden. You know, everybody else will, will follow suit. And, and uh, a culture that worships, you know, beauty and, and, and how they define it in a really uh, a shallow way, uh, worships athleticism, worships these things. And sometimes, every time there's a false god, that leads to bad things for other people. And what's happened with our culture's obsession with youth is that many older people in our culture have been disrespected. And I've traveled enough to see that this is not normal, even in the world. Most countries where I've been to, they, they revere the older people in their society, and they get it right. In America, we're not getting this one right very often. And so let me just say that today's sermon is countercultural. If we're going to live out God's principles you're actually going to have to push upstream against what our culture tells us. But it's not just that the young in our culture often have a disrespect for the older, because when that happens, there's always a pushback the other direction, right? And we see that. Because right now, if you went online and just Googled millennial, I promise you most of what you would see would be nasty things written. I think there's actually a competition to see who can write the most nasty things about millennials. But here's what's interesting is, to me, I, if you ever were to read one of those articles and just take the word millennial and put in any ethnic group of your choice, okay? Uh, if you said Latino and you switch those two, 
that person would be called a racist for what they just said about a whole bunch of nameless people, you know? And I think, should we not have at least some sensitivity before we just stereotype an entire generation? It's not to say we can't learn from the generations. I'm a Gen Xer, and I remember there were books written about, here's how Gen Xers think, and some of them were right about us, and some of them maybe not. But all that to say is, you know that we have some divisiveness in our culture between the generations, between the young and the old. And I really appreciate Gail reading our scriptures for us today uh, because Paul had some specific things to say to Timothy and Titus that he wanted them to teach and he wanted the church to know and he wants us to know these instructions for different generations. And if I could just paint one picture for you this morning, it would be of a healthy family dinner. And so... Happy Mother's Day. Some of you will be having a, a uh, Mother's Day lunch or dinner later today. And for some of you, it's hard to picture a healthy family gathering because you haven't been part of that. And I am so sorry that today brings some amount of pain for you. But I would like you all just to picture what does a, a very healthy family dinner or lunch look like. And a really healthy one looks like grandpa is telling stories and the kids are laughing and giggling, but also learning from the stories. And then aunt and uncle are serving the food and um, they're making sure that grandma, grandma has all the help that she needs and they won't let her even touch the dirty dishes. They're going to take care of those. And then the, uh, the grandson sees that grandpa needs some more tea and his back has kind of been bothering him. So he goes and gets some more tea for grandpa. And uh, the aunt notices that one of her nieces is kind of quiet and maybe having a sad day. And so she pulls her to the side and they talk for a little while. And there's just all of this interaction happening and it's all healthy taking care of one another. And that is what God's ideal for the church would be, that we could be together, young and old, serving each other in this beautiful harmony where it's not me against you or young against old, it's just we're family. So we take care of each other and we love each other. And Paul encourages uh, women and men and everybody, regardless of their stage in life or their age in life, And I like what commentator C. Michael Moss adds. He says, we see that word submission in here. Uh, And sometimes people get the wrong idea about that. But he says, submission to one another doesn't equal inferiority. When a child submits to mom and dad, it doesn't mean that God loves mom and dad more than the child. It means that 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 child's role in life right then to serve mom and dad. And um, when we submit to one another in a church family, doesn't mean we're inferior to anybody. In fact, it's strengthening the body of Christ to care and submit to one another in that way. But really, nobody gets off the hook when Paul's writing here because he kind of addresses everyone, and he starts uh, with older men. He says, older men should be temperate, so we don't need, it. We, we don't need uh, grumpy old men. Okay, That's what he's basically saying. No grumpy old men allowed. Instead... They would be worthy of respect and self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and endurance. It's the picture of this wise, respected man still striving and still growing. And even though you respect him, you still see him trying to um, honor God more and to love more. And he just never gives up with that. But it's not just him by himself. Because the Bible paints this picture that he's not just on an island by himself, but he's looking and he's finding younger men, and he's to treat them as younger brothers. Paul even called Timothy a son. And what a beautiful picture of the older men 
in the church, caring for the younger men as sons or as younger brothers or as a nephew and teaching them and caring for them and talking to them about life. It's a beautiful thing. And then Paul says, hey, and younger men, when, when you look at, when you live, be self-controlled. Now that's a phrase we don't often use with younger men, is it? We call them college boys, not college men. Why? Because they've unfortunately oftentimes lived up to that reputation. But young men, college men, we need you to be men. God says, be men. Don't be boys anymore. Grow up. Have a seriousness to your life. doesn't mean you can't have fun, but have a seriousness to your life, a direction in your life where you don't just throw away four years or eight years or 20 years, but you actually have this seriousness in this direction in your life that you know that God created you for something. So set an example in integrity, in speech that cannot even be questioned. Watch your words. But the younger man is not just by himself either. It says, treat the older men with respect as a father. So the younger man isn't just by himself. He's looking to the older man and respecting and serving and loving and caring. And older women are to avoid slander, addiction to alcohol, uh, that they can then teach the younger women how to be a godly woman, a godly wife, godly mom, a godly friend, a godly neighbor, all of the different roles that women play in our world. And so the older woman, Paul says, you have a role to play as well. And the younger woman, you also have a role. He says, you're to love your families and you're to be pure and to be kind and to be disciplined. And we see this beautiful circle of humility with each age group serving the other and caring for the other and respecting the other. There's lots of lonely people in our neighborhood. We've learned that. And we've learned it a couple different ways, but if you just were to do some demographic study, you would find that many people who move into this neighborhood are, or are living in this neighborhood often fall into one or two categories. Not, not always, but, but lots of times they do. Lots of times folks move into this neighborhood because they've just bought their first house um, or maybe even rented a house, but they've just bought their first house. And um, if they have a fashion eye, you know, right, at, right now as we speak, they're like ripping out the old shag carpet and they're uncovering the windows and they're getting, they find out, wow, there's these beautiful floors underneath here that got covered up and, and they're enjoying having this new, small, wonderful little home. But oftentimes, maybe as they move here, they feel a little isolated you know, whenever you maybe move to a new place, a new apartment, new house, and all of a sudden you're in this new environment, and some of them maybe have a baby for the first time. And I'll tell you, have you ever seen a mom and dad with a baby and without maybe biological family close by, and they just need some spiritual family? They need a, a, an older man, an older woman who has some time who can come and hang out with them and talk to them about you know what, I remember being really stressed out too when my baby cried all night. And, I, and why don't you come to the baby's birthday party when he turns one and beginning just to share in life with each other. There's so many couples. I think sometimes the older generation forgets that the younger generation really, really needs them. Older generation, and I fall, I'm, I'm getting closer and closer to that. I don't know where I am, maybe in the middle. But we've got a lot of kids here. When I started at Highland Park, they weren't born yet. Our high school seniors are in that boat, okay? Older generation, never forget the younger generation needs you. Don't think that because they might be physically healthy, they don't need your encouragement and your help. They really do. There's lots of people in our neighborhood, too, 
who have lived in the same house for 40 years. They've been in this neighborhood a long time, and they've seen all of these changes take place. And maybe they've had a spouse pass away. They've had some of their closest friends move you know, in with a, a, another family member or maybe have passed away, and the neighborhood has kind of changed, and they don't know everybody anymore. And things feel a little different. And when that starts to happen, your world starts to kind of close in on you. And you begin to have some fears about getting out. And we know that we have some older folks in our neighborhood who are very, very lonely. Next week is our day of serving, which means that we'll have community teams out in the neighborhood, raking yards, cleaning gutters. And when we first started this thing, uh, going out and trying to serve people, we realized we met lots of different people But I remember the first time I pulled up to a yard with our team, and we looked at the yard, and it was, like, way nicer than mine. Mine's not all that great, but it was, like, well-kept. And I was like, well, why did they even want us to come here? And the lady's name was Mary. And Mary had a task list for us, and it was this. Paint this one pole that was about five feet and change this one outside light bulb. That was it. And we're, like, ten of us showed up. We get there, and she immediately has hot chocolate for all the kids. She's handing out hot chocolate. And so we, most of us stand on the porch because there's just not a lot to do. And we're staying there, we're visiting, and she begins to share how she has a terminal illness. She doesn't have long left to live. And her daughter also has cancer. And she's very concerned about her daughter and what will happen to grandkids, and just life feels very overwhelming. And I be, it, it began to dawn on me, okay, she did not need anybody to help her with her yard. She just needed somebody to listen to her. And so every year we, we know that some of our teams will show up to a, a yard in which, you know, we kind of picture an older lady outside with a rake knocking leaves off of her tree so you'll have something to rake when you show up because that's the only thing that's wrong. But we, God taught us, you know, we go to minister to people, not to just care for a yard. We care for people. And there's lots of people who are lonely. I'm so thankful that Highland Park has things like game day and brown bag lunch for folks in our neighborhood and folks in our church who may be lonely. By the way, don't forget that we have that. You may be a person who needs to invest and engage in others. You should maybe just come play some dominoes with some folks and build some relationships. You may have a neighbor, and it would be the best thing in the world if you brought them here. Don't forget about the things that we have to help just bring people together and give them friends and things to do. We, we really want our church to promote generational unity. And I, I want to talk just for a moment about what we can do as a church, and then I want to talk about what each of us can kind of do individually to speak into this. And just to begin with, as a church, just two things I want you to think about. Number one is if we want generational unity, we got to value it. I mean, just collectively, we have to say it's important to us to be together. And you think about it, like who's the best person in the world to give advice to a young man who's just started his first job and he's really struggling keeping up at work and knowing how to be a godly man in the business world. An older man who's been there and done that and has some wisdom to give to him. Who's the best person to help that older man um, with some yard work or to move the couch out because his back has gone out? That younger guy he just talked to and encouraged with the job. It's not rocket science here. We, we sometimes think, uh, and we kind of rage against aging, but it was God who set up this whole aging thing. Maybe he knew what he was doing. Maybe he knew the only way to bring us together 
was to put some of this aging stuff in. Yeah, we live in a fallen world, and I don't want to discredit that. Uh, God, God has a plan for this. I'm just saying, let's not always write off everything about aging as being bad, that it has the potential to help bring us together. And so God can do something through all the generations in this, and we want to value it. We want Highland Park to be here for the long haul. And if Highland Park's going to be here for the long haul, we need to be multi-generational, that we need to care and love people now and care and love people later. And if we value that, that means that all collectively we sacrifice some in order for the betterment of everybody else. And I know that it could be easy to um, maybe just package the church for one generation or the other and in how you do everything. And I want to tell you that it is our desire not to try to appease everybody who comes in the room. Trying to appease hundreds of people is a losing game. But trying to love hundreds of people is a wonderful thing. And we think about how can we love people? How can we love the old and love the young? And even when I think about illustrations I use, sometimes I'm like, oh, well, the FDR illustration I'm going to use in a few minutes, well, that will really connect with some people. And then we also have a group of people at Highland Park, and they've only known two presidents. You know, FDR is way, way back in the history books for them. And, and, um, and I think, oh, man, I've got this great illustration about MacGyver. And I'm like, oh, wait, you don't know who MacGyver is. You should look him up, right? And so uh, in that, and there's things to be said with how everything happens in the structure and the systems of a church. And I just want to say this. I know that we're not perfect. Um, but we certainly desire to be a multi-generational church and to love all people as best we can uh, every single time. So we have to value it. And the second thing is we've got to be intentional about it. You know, if we're left to ourselves, to our own instincts, and to the streams of culture, then we'll just be around people who are like us, people who look like us, our age, our stage, our background, our culture, our understanding, our language, all of that. We'll just be with people who are like us. And so we have to intentionally get outside of that bubble, and it takes work. It doesn't just happen naturally. And so as a church, we want to step outside of that. And as individuals, we step outside of that. And as groups of Christians here, we step outside of that over and over again. I recently heard uh, from somebody older in the church and from some folks younger in the church just this last month how they had been so blessed to be part of a rooted discipleship group that was multi-generational. And it even kind of surprised them what a great blessing that was. And every time we have people together from different generations, we hear those same things. It was so good to have the kids here. It was so good to have the younger adults here. It was so good to be with some people I could really look up to and learn from them. All of that was good. And if, if Christians could be obedient to Philippians 2, if you're struggling with humility, just spend some time in Philippians 2 this week. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, Paul writes. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. And if that's the case in the church, then it's not different factions fighting for themselves. It's the older people in the church fighting for the younger, saying, don't forget about them, don't forget about them, don't forget about them. And it's the younger people in the church saying, don't forget about them, don't forget about them, don't forget about them. How can we love them? How can we love them? And it's here. How can we love them? And it's everybody saying, how can we love the others? Don't you want to be part of that church? Instead of, can I get mine? Can you do it my way? Instead, we're fighting for each other. If we could just hear Philippians 2, we'll be in great shape. But we do this not because we have to, 
but because we love to, because we love one another, because God is transforming us. I saw a video um, that we had taken years ago of my son playing t-ball and getting a hit and his little legs running around, and my heart just swelled with joy and pride. I just loved, I watched it several times, and you know what it's like to see those pictures and those videos. What if, what if everyone in church older saw the younger and their heart had that same response of, oh, I love that person. I care for that person. When I was 16 or 17, I was in a car wreck had four or five other teenagers with me, and thankfully we were all okay. But it dinged up my car, and um, my, my dad had some stuff going on, and he told me, he's like, well, call your grandpa. And so I called my grandpa, my dad's dad. He was a car guy, and he said, yeah, I'll help you, Brian. And I remember hanging out with him for an afternoon after school, and he gave me a little talk about being safe, and um, he talked about, but you're okay, and that's really the only thing, and I know we're going to figure out how to pay for this. And he took me to a shop, and we got to the shop, and everybody at the shop knew my grandpa because he was a heating and air guy, and he always worked with integrity, and so everybody cared for him, so they gave him a deal. And he talked to me about which tire I should pick out, and he just taught me. And I remember being proud to be with him that day. What if every younger person in the church, when they saw someone older than them, could just have this pride of like, I love being with them. I love spending time and learning from them. So I do have an action step for you. And it's, it's one that I just want to encourage you. Make, put this on your refrigerator, do, do something. But this summer, your action step is connect with someone or some family um, older than you, younger than you, in a different generation. Just figure out this summer how to connect. If you don't have those people in your life, have them over for lunch on a Sunday, and then maybe you'll begin a, a relationship, and maybe you'll find there's some ways you can serve them and some ways you can bless them, and make it about them. Ask some questions and then just listen. That's one of the best things that we can do. But you'll never know the impact that you can make. There's a guy named Andy Andrews who wrote a book called The Butterfly Effect, and he tells a story that I just won't soon forget. But... Um, the Department of Agriculture about, oh gosh, about 60 years ago um, began this program where they recruited a scientist by the name of Norman Borlaug, and they said, we want you to begin this operation, this center in Mexico, where you figure out um, how to work with corn and wheat and hybridization and, and, and doing all of this to make corn and wheat and other foods grow well in arid climates, especially where famine often hits. And so he agreed to this, and he led this team in Mexico. And 20 years later, just in Mexico alone, they had doubled the amount of corn production, and wheat production had increased by five times. I mean, people were weren't starving because of what their work was doing. And so as this got copied and passed on worldwide, he won the Nobel Prize in 1970. And it is said today that Norman Borlaug's work has saved the lives of 2 billion people. One guy. Except here's the thing. Norman Borlaug maybe shouldn't really get the credit. Because there was a man who had this idea on a trip to Mexico. This man, his name was Henry Wallace, and Henry Wallace um, was uh, the Secretary of Agriculture, and then he was the Vice President for FDR for just one of FDR's terms. I think FDR always got a different Vice President each time. And one of those was, was Wallace, and while he was Vice President, you know, he had the resources, 
to fund this whole thing that happened down in Mexico. And he selected Borlaug personally and had him do this. And so without Henry Wallace, that would have never happened. But he funded it and did this whole, made this whole effort. And he, and he had it set up for the long haul. So it was going for years and years and years, even after he was gone. And so some people have said, well, Henry Wallace could be credited with saving the lives of 2 billion people. But Henry Wallace doesn't really deserve the credit. Because when Henry Wallace was six years old, that's when he developed a love for agriculture. When he was six years old, his dad was a professor at Iowa State. And his dad um, became friends with this student who was just brilliant and was always taking nature walks and learning. And his dad approached this student and he said, would you take my son, who's just six, and help him just to love agriculture and plants and flowers and trees and just teach him and build this love for him? And the student said, I'd be glad to. And so this student, this college student, mentored young six-year-old Henry Wallace, who would change the world. That student's name, George Washington Carver. Ah, now, you, now a name that we all know, right? And so some people could say, well, George Washington Carver saved the lives of two billion people, except the credit doesn't really go to him. Because when he was a young guy, he had a friend named uh, uh, Etta Budd. She was um, young had a different, lighter skin color than him, and yet she reached out to him and became friends with him. And George Washington Carver at first loved to paint. So he painted flowers and trees and plants. And she said, George, you really ought to just study and not just paint because that will take you farther in this world. Maybe she wasn't a huge fan of just art, but she was onto something. And so he began to really study and learn about the plants and flowers and trees And she was right on this one. She helped him enroll at Iowa State, um, where he became the first African-American student. And she went to visit him. And when she visited him, he was being forced to eat his meals in the kitchen. He wasn't allowed in the cafeteria because of the color of his skin. And she was enraged by this. So she brought him out to the cafeteria, introduced him to people, and continued to eat lunch with him until all the people realized, George is a great guy. You know, we should have had him here with us long ago. And so it was her dedication and her work in many ways that influenced George Washington Carver to go to college and then encourage him to stay there and to learn. By the way, when he was graduated, he was so highly respected that they just hired him to stay there as a professor. They were like, we don't want this guy to leave. And so Emma Budd is responsible for saving the lives of 2 billion people. And I'm sure this story could go on and on and on, right? you, You see where this is going. But here's what I want to tell you, that your life matters too. Your life matters too. And it might be the smallest thing that you do that can make a difference and you'll never even see it. It might be generations from now in which you will do something in which God changes the world through your story. I just want to leave you with three just kind of bullet point things that we all need to realize. First is this, you will never see the full impact of your life. That's just the truth. Good or bad, you'll never see it. When Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho, people thought her usefulness was only for one thing. And yet God saw something greater in her, and he gave her the opportunity to show kindness to his people and to be obedient, and she said yes to his offer. She said, yes, I will obey you, Lord. And you know where we read Rahab's name now? In the genealogy of Jesus. Nobody ever saw that one coming. You read through the whole genealogy and you just think, they never saw that one coming, never saw that one coming, never saw that one coming, and that God worked through all these people uh, to, 
to be part of the story of salvation coming, you'll never see the full impact of your life. Number two, your life counts. Your life counts because God made you, period. You're, you are not more valuable if you have a whole bunch of kids or no kids. You are not more valuable if your family life is beautiful right now or a train wreck right, right now. That does not make you more or less valuable. You are valuable because God made you. He loves you. Isaiah says he knows your name. He cares for you. And if you're walking through the turbulent waters or the fires of life right now, Isaiah says, God says, I'm with you. I'm right there with you. I know your name. I care for you. I love you. If you believe God matters, that God is valuable, then you must also believe that you are valuable because his creation is valuable. And he created you, and he loves you. Number three, you'll never see the full impact of your life. Your life counts. And number three, your days are numbered. And so while I hope that this morning I've caused you to maybe reflect a little bit, and in our, in our weekly and even daily life, we need to have some time of quiet reflection, I also just want to encourage you with this. Don't get stuck in a life of uncertain, noncommittal contemplation. That can go on too long. So let your reflection and your prayer and your meditation upon God, let that fuel you stepping and walking in obedience with what God wants you to do. And God wants you to be a person who follows him and loves him, and that begins with being humble. And you're humble because God made you, and if he made you, he made everyone else. He made the young, and he made the old, and he made us to be together as a family. And if this morning you've never said yes to Jesus, I want you to know that your life matters to Jesus, and he cares for you, and he can forgive you of your sins and let you walk with him, and he will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit to guide you in life. And we would love to help you with that decision. If even during this next song you would like to come to the front, we'll have some folks who would love to pray with you and talk with you. If you would like to just come quietly when the service is over, That's fine, too. We'll have some folks here. You can mark that on your card if you want to study with someone this week. We want to be able to be available to guide you and help you as you walk through this. If you would, would you stand and pray with me? God, we thank you so much that you've given us value in life, young, old, in between, all of us. And so, God, I pray that every person here knows that they are valuable to you, and they're valuable to us. So God, bring us together, help us to love others, and for anybody who has not said yes to your offer for eternal life, for salvation, I pray today they would accept that and say yes to you, and we could begin a conversation, and um, God, we just pray uh, for miracles to happen today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.